Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. How are you at loving? Oh, not loving easy to love people. How are you at loving hard to love people? Uh, I think we got some work to do. Let's talk about it. Now, uh, there's this lens that, that we all actually live our lives with. It's a, it's a lens that we see all of our relationships through this lens. Every person we come across, every person in our life, we fit them somewhere in this lens. It's one of three parts. The first part is love. So I run across someone, and, and I think, I, I like this person. This, this, this person is good. They love me, so obviously they got good taste. So I love them. These people have my back. They're good to me. I, I like these people. I like their vibe. I, I love them. These aren't people that I need the Holy Spirit's help with, with loving. They're just easy people to love. And then there's the second category, people that eh, we're just indifferent to. I could take them or leave them. You know, they're in my life, but not because I necessarily chose them or want them. It's just the boss hired that person or the in-law married that person. Like, I wouldn't choose them in my life, but here we are. And so we'll be cordial. Uh, but I'm not going to like go out of my way to really take an interest in them. I'm not going to go out of my way to really serve them. They're just, there's a cordial indifference. And then, despite what your self-righteousness says, you have a third category to call hate. I'm a good person. I don't hate that many people, so there we go. Just that many people. We wouldn't outrightly admit that we hate them, and maybe we don't curse them, but we certainly don't wish the best on them because they hurt, they hurt me. Like that in-law, that sibling, that coworker, that old friend, they said this, he always wants up me, she does this, they make me feel less than, they hurt me, they have more than me, they're viewed better than me and they shouldn't be because they're like this, they're so fake, they're so pretentious, they did this to me long ago and justice wasn't done, they live in my head rent-free, they rub me the wrong way, they're hard to deal with, I don't want to be around them. You got that category. See, this is the lens that we approach our relationships with. And then we categorize. I'm going to text. I'm going to go out with. I'm going to post pictures with. I'm going to want to be in a small group with this category right here. Uh, this category, I'll talk with them so they don't seem like a jerk, so they don't seem very cliquish. I'll talk with them, but I'm not going to necessarily go out of my way. And then these people right here, I'm just going to tactfully try to stay away from this group as much as possible. And I totally get it. The problem is, is when we live our lives this way, we treat people the way they treat us instead of how God treats us. So if you love me, then I love you. And if you're indifferent toward me, well, then I can take you or leave you too, like no skin off my nose. And if you hurt me, well, then I'm going to ghost you. In so doing, treating people the way they treat us, not how God treats us. And that's why Jesus said, man, even the pagans live their lives with that lens. That's what the pagans do. And there are times where we'll realize, you know, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't feel that way about that person. And so we'll think, I'll just try to put the people in my hate category. I'll just try to put them in my indifference category, right? At least that's better. So that way I just don't care. I don't hate them. I just, I don't, I don't care. Am I the only one who ever thinks that way? I mean, I just do a lot better in life. I could just put all my people that I hate into my indifference category. And today is going to be so uncomfortable because God wants to just remove this whole lens of yours where you see and you interact with and you treat people with love regardless who they are. You do it with everyone. doesn't mean you want to have boundaries. doesn't mean you're not going to be closer to other people than, than, than other people. But today, God wants to remove this lens of yours. It's going to be so difficult but it is so freeing 
And John invites us on the journey. I hope you're in. First John 3 is where we're at. We're in chapter 3, verse 10. We're just going to start in verse 10, just kind of work our way from there. But first John, really encourage you to grab a Bible. Page 1022 in the Bibles in the chairs. Uh, we also have the Bridge app with the Bible on the Bridge app. And then you can also take notes on there as, as well. Otherwise, we have the, the paper notes in the bulletin too. Let me pray. We'll jump right into this. Uh, God, I thank you so much for, for John. I thank you for him recording this. Uh, God, today, your word is not going to pull any punches. There's going to be some, some difficult moments. Uh, even for me, studying this and reading through this, there's, there's times where I just want to raise my hand and go, yeah, yeah, but, but, but what about, what about, what about? God, I ask that you just calm our, 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 our hearts today. May, may your Holy Spirit work. Uh, there will be situations that come to mind, faces that come to mind in the next little bit. And I ask that we don't suppress those, but that we really lean into your Holy Spirit during this time as your Spirit illuminates this text but also bring situations to mind. And God, I, I pray that, that we leave this auditorium without that lens that we just talked about. And do a surgery if you must. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into 1 John 3, the, the morning light peeks through the wooden shutters of the old stone home, illuminating the, the particles that, that hang in the air. He was up before the sun. He just couldn't sleep, couldn't get comfortable, restless. His mind was racing. So he got out of bed, and he sits in a rickety old wooden chair and watches the window slats glow orange and then yellow. The first light of morning always brings John back to that morning 60 years ago when his best friend Jesus had made a fire and was cooking fish, cooking breakfast on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. It was just before the sun was rising. The smell of the fish, having Jesus standing there by the fire. Just what a memory. Every time the sun rises, he goes back there. He smiles as he remembers sitting on a rock with his friends and teasing Peter who had jumped out of the boat too soon. Peter sitting there soaking wet. As that picture still brings his smile to his wrinkled face. And what, what do you do to go back? I mean, all those guys are gone. Peter was crucified uh, with his wife. Matthew had been stabbed to death by an angry mob. All those guys are gone, and it's just, it's just him left now. Old, worn, tired John. And this morning, his mind is just racing with thoughts. One of those thoughts is he has the reputation of being a kind, old, gentle, old man. And every time he hears it, he, he laughs a little. Because it wasn't always like that. See, in his 20s, uh, John asked Jesus to send fire down on a, on a city and burn the whole town up. And after Jesus laughed at him a little bit, Jesus nicknamed him the, the son of thunder. You know, the vengeful, temper-filled thunder. And that old part of John's long gone. See, there's something that John caught from Jesus. Yeah, sure, Jesus taught around the, the fire about it. And as they walked, Jesus would teach about it. But some things are better caught than taught. The way that Jesus viewed and treated and dealt with people, it was un unlike anything he had ever seen. The way he interacted with strangers, the way he interacted with the religious leaders who were plotting his death, the way he interacted with children, the way he interacted with the sick, it's like Jesus lived his life without this lens that everybody has. It was peculiar yet strangely refreshing. Maybe what his mind is racing with needs to be put on paper. Maybe his restlessness in him is from God. He wipes the, the sleep out of his baggy eyes. He scoots his chair over to the table. He grabs utensil. He dips in ink. 
And he continues to write. He writes this. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, there's so much packed in this verse. We're actually going to, later on next week, we're going to tackle more of this whole whoever does not practice righteousness is, is not from God. We're going to tackle that more next week. But look at the end of this verse. The end of this verse is very remarkable. John says, you want evidence for someone who follows Jesus. They love their brother. Now, brother doesn't mean physical sibling. It means, just, it means fellow believer. So that's the specific context. The specific context of what we're talking about today is John is talking about um, how we love each other. Those within the church, those within the body of Christ, how we love each other. That's the specific context that John is going to be talking about. However, what John also talks about carries over to how we treat people outside the church, people in general. So within the church is the specific context of what we're talking about today, but it also carries to the outside. And it's very interesting what John is doing uh, in this verse. See, again, John has that reputation of being the, the sweet, loving, old, gentle man. And as he pens these words, it's almost as if he's saying, I shouldn't be the only one with that reputation. You should be seen that way too. That's the number one thing that you should be known for, your love. Not, oh, they're super healthy. Oh, they're so crunchy. Oh, they know a lot. Oh, they're political. Oh, they go to the gym. Oh, they're COVID conscious. Oh, they're anti-mask. Or they're very trendy. No, 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 John says the number one thing you should be known for when someone thinks of your name, when your face comes up, love should be the first thing that comes to mind. And that's convicting for me because I like to be known for a lot of things and love is not up there. Yeah, I'd love for my wife to know me as a good lover, but that's a wholly, whole different conversation. Now, I like to be known for adventure. I like to be known as a, as a fun person. I like to be known as a, as a great hang, as a good conversation. And John would say, that's fine, Junior. But love is number one because, here are pieces in, in John, God is love. And if God is love, those who claim to be of God better be dang good at loving. Loving people who are hard to love. Loving people who do nothing for our image. Loving those who hate us really good at loving. That's why in verse 11, you see in the next verse, he says, love one another. He's repeating this over and over and over. But I want to take a time out here because our, our society, we really love this verse, right? We love this verse. God is love. Love is love. We should all love. It's all about love. Where's the love? I just want to take a time out here and say that, that God is love, but, but love is not God. We like to elevate um, one attribute of God over the others in, in our society. So, um, and even Christians do this. We, we love love. That is so politically correct. That sells, that, that, that fills seats in churches. God is love. Who can argue with that? Like, let's elevate that. Let's focus on that. Love, 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 love. But we have to understand that is one of many attributes of God. John starts the book off by talking about God's holiness. God is holy, so holy he can't even be around sin. God is just. He will deal with sin. God is immutable. Just because culture deems something okay doesn't mean that, that God moves and changes his mind on that. So yes, God is love, but we have to understand this whole idea holistically in the context of his other attributes. When we don't, when we elevate one attribute over the other, what we actually do is we create our own God. There's a lot of people who are worshiping really just a fraction of God. I just like the love portion of, of God. And so doing that, really creating their own their own God. And not just that, but when we isolate or when we elevate one attribute of God over the others, we actually lose the full definition of that term. So think about it this way. Um, we all, all of us in this room, we, we wear different hats, right? So for me, um, I'm a husband, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a pastor, 
I have all these different roles, these different attributes, so to speak. If you want to get to know the kind of father I am to my girls, you have to also look at the kind of husband I am to my wife. It's, it's fluid. The kind of husband I, I am to my wife impacts the kind of father I am to my girls. It's all very connected. So you can't just look at me as a father. You also have to look at how, the, the kind of husband I am too because that impacts my fatherhood. It's the same thing with God's attributes. When we don't see God's love in the context of, his, of, of holiness, we're actually missing out on what love actually is. And I say this, I don't know, it feels like we're splitting hairs here and getting into the woods. I almost didn't say this. I say this, though, because it is very, very important. The trend in our society, especially among Christians, is let's focus on love, let's just talk about love, uh, and that will continue to be the trend as we move forward. Just love, 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 love. And at the bridge, we'll be very clear, we're not against love. We're for the full definition of love in the context of God's other attributes. And when we isolate or elevate one attribute over the others and take it out of context, we distort what love actually is. And so week in and week out, we're not just going to talk about love, even though it fills more seats and sells better, we're also gonna talk about holiness because that gives us a more holistic approach to what true love actually is. Does that make sense? I know we're getting into the woods here, but that is so very, very important. Getting back to what John is saying though, he's saying we should be known for our love. What does that mean? How do we do that? How do we be known for our love? How can you be known as a very loving person? The world around you would say, well, if you want to be known as a very loving person, you want to have that reputation, um, you're going to have to probably let go of your holiness. To be known for your love, you're going to have to vote this way. You're going to have to agree with this, this, and this. You're going to have to approve of this. You're going to have to post this. You're going to have to march here. You're going to have to virtue signal. You have to do all these things if you want to be known as, as a loving person. But old John would come along and say, eh, that's, that's more of the isolated love. i got a much different way, a much better way, a more holistic approach than how to be known for your love. And he continues writing, and he seems to just veer way off topic right here. He goes, we should not be like Cain, who is, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. First John, by the way, is a, is a difficult book to preach through because it's like, John's writing is like, oh yeah, this, and oh yeah, this, and oh yeah, this. And it's like, as you're like studying, it's like, how do I, you know, I, I like to think of, and this is a compliment, I like to think of, uh, John is a lot like Pastor Brian. I love Pastor Brian. Sometimes, you know, when I talk to him, he's like, he's over here, and then squirrel, and we're over here. And actually, it all does make sense, and it's very, very important, and it is connected, but, but my mind, my mind works different. So I'm like, wait, why are we over here, now we're, we're over here? That, that's, that's a lot like John. That's, again, a great compliment, because John is best friend of of Jesus, and he does that a little bit in his book. He's like over here, then he's over here, then he's over here, but it is all connected. And so what John is doing right here is he's taking us back to Genesis for, for a case study. You ever hear in a sociology or on the news or in a podcast or you read a book, uh, people saying that crime or hate or violence is, is a cultural thing? It's a, it's a society thing. We got to blame society. So if there's, a, if there's a shooting, it's society's fault that there was a shooting for this, this, and this. That's why when there's a tragedy, you turn on the news, and a lot of times the news anchors are arguing over what in society needs to change so that it doesn't happen again. Now, I'm not saying society never plays a part, but what John is saying here is he's saying, look at Cain and Abel for a second. There was no society. There was just two boys and two parents. One boy killed the other. It's not society. Sin is the problem. It's not society. Sin nature is the problem. And I love what John is getting at. I love this case study. If you don't know the story, you have Cain and Abel were brothers. Both showed up to, to worship God. Cain brought some of his resources to worship. Abel brought some of his resources to worship because that's what you do in worship. You, you, you give, you're, you're generous. And God looked favorably on Abel's sacrifice, but he did not look favorably on Cain's. 
And scholars debate over why one brother's worship was accepted and not the other. And one of the reasons that many point to was the heart in which they came to worship. Cain showed up with his competition and his bitterness in his heart. That's why very soon after, Cain kills Abel. If this is too gruesome, I apologize. Let's get rid of these for a second. Cain's worship was accepted because as he worshiped, he had these seeds of hatred in his heart. He went to worship with anger and bitterness and envy in his heart. John says here in this text, this is so big. He says, when you put a brother or sister in Christ in the hate category of yours. So if you, if you don't want to see that person or that person who that, that social media, it bothers you. And you can tell because you follow them, but you never like any of their stuff and you're angry with them and you want nothing to do with them, and you've gossiped about them. Anytime you run across a picture of theirs or their name comes up, that anger, that envy, or that bitterness just kind of flares up in you. And then you show up for church to worship your Cain. That's exactly what Cain did. You ever open up your Bible and you're like, great, I just feel worse about myself now. I thought God's love, I thought the Bible's supposed to make me feel better. Why, why, why did I have to read this? Scripture says that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and sometimes that sword does surgery, and it hurts. You think about just the, the magnitude of what John is saying here. When there is someone in that hate category, I know you don't call it hate, but it's there. When you have somebody in that category, and you show up to worship, you're Cain. And he he uh, seems to switch gears in, in verse 13, but again, he's not veering off topic. He, he, he's, he's, this is all connected, and we'll talk about it. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Yeah, it seems like he's veering off topic, but he's not. John says, you got to love. It's evidence of being in God's family. You have to love. you got to love hard to love people. You cannot hate. But also, as you don't hate, you should expect to be hated. But to be candid with you, this is where I trip up. If I, if I love, I want to be loved back. I expect to be loved back. If, if you don't love me back, if you cut me up in gossip or you stab me in the back or you just don't like me, I'm caught by surprise because it's my pride. How could you do that? Like a couple of years ago, uh, someone in, the, in my church, uh, someone in the church, they, they reached out to me and they said, hey, uh, Junior, could you go to breakfast with somebody in my small group? Um, I think it'd be good for you guys to go for breakfast because he doesn't like you. So he said on the phone. I said back, I was like, I've never met him. How could he not like me? I mean, like, come on, what's there not to like? Like, I'm all surprised, you know, I guess, like my pride was completely hurt. And John says here, he says, don't be surprised, especially you, Junior. Don't be surprised. You got to love the people, and you have to be, you have to expect that you're going to be hated back. And, and you have those. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Because maybe for you, when you decided to follow Jesus, you let your family down. They don't like this new you. And now they try to, you know, press your buttons to get you to show your old self, get that temper to flare back up and show your old self. Or you have former friends, they don't like this new you. You don't do the stuff that you used to do. And, and now there's this, this dislike of you, this hatred. They don't, want, they don't want anything to do with you now. Or, or that you got that coworker who's just got it out for you, that in-law you could just never seem to please, or that ex that won't stop trying to hurt you, or that face that comes to mind. They just don't like you. And you don't know what you did to them, but they just don't like you. They've put you in the hate category, and naturally you've placed them in, in yours. At best, you're just trying to be indifferent about them. And old John says here, he says, you got to expect that. And you also, you know you got to love them, right? Because what you're doing, treating people the way that they treat you, well, that's just natural. 
but you're to live supernaturally. We have the Holy Spirit to give us strength to love while we're being hated. So John is saying, I, you need to live supernaturally, remove that lens. You don't have to be their best friend. You don't have to remove all your boundaries, but you do have to pray for those who curse you. And when you have an opportunity to bless that person, whether they're in your love, indifferent, or hate category, you have, you have to bless them. Can't we just stop right here? I feel like we've taken enough. Verses 14 through 15, uh, John repeats this theme. Skip to verse 16. In verse 16, he starts to get very, very practical on what it means to love. See, uh, when we hear the word love, we automatically think of a feeling. Um, you know, like the feeling I have when I kiss Nicole or, or the, the feeling I have when I walk in the doors and, and my daughters run to me, you know, when I'm home from work or, or the feeling I have when, when a friend goes to, to, to bat for you. That's like, that, that's, that's often what we think of when we read the word love. We read it as a feeling. Even though we know it's not a feeling, we tend to just default to going there. Uh, it was like when I, um, when I was in sixth grade, I had a teacher. Her name was Mrs. Lervick. She's an old lady, um, very scary looking lady. She had that uh, resting um, mean face. Uh, kids, were, kids were just terrified, terrified of her. I was terrified of her. She was my teacher for every subject from fourth through sixth grade because I went to one of these like one-room schoolhouse deals. Um, and I wasn't a bad kid. I, I, was, I was annoying. I was awkward. Not much has changed. Um, I didn't pay attention in class. I remember one time she threw a, a, the textbook. She was teaching, like lecturing, and she threw a textbook at, at me and hit me in the head while I was daydreaming. And when I'm afraid of, when I'm afraid of someone, I feel like you don't like me, I, 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 would, I play pranks. And so I would prank her all the time. Like one time we were dissecting um, baby pigs in class and I took one and I put it in her desk. Classic. It was so good. Um, as strict as she was though, and as hard as I was to teach the, the pranks that I pulled, the distraction I was during class, she would just do special things for me periodically. I remember the morning my grandpa died. I was in sixth grade. And uh, I was walking into school, and she, she ran outside to catch me before I got in, inside because she didn't want me to cry in front of my friends. And she found me and just gave me a hug and just comforted me and said, hey, if you, if you ever need to just leave class while I'm talking and go to the bathroom, it's okay. I just want you to know that. Uh, she handmade me Christmas presents. I remember she made me a, a, a bow and arrow. I got a wood one year for, for Christmas. She handmade that for me. Now, my previous teachers were not like that at all. My previous teachers, you know, they were really good to the teachers' pets. They were really good. If you did well in class, they were very, very good to you. They spent a lot of time with you. Uh, if you did not do well, if you were a distraction like me, it was just more of like I'm just, you know, trying to put you off. Mrs. Lervick was not like that at all. She was just strict and hard and loving with, with everybody. It's like she didn't have that lens. And so when I was in college, I heard that she was in the hospital and she was about to die and, and so I went to go visit her, and I walked into the room, and, and I said to Mrs. Lervick, I said, uh, Mrs. Lervick, thank you so much for not only teaching me, but thank you for loving me. And uh, she, she laughed through her oxygen mask, and she said, love you? Just to be honest with you, I, I'm not sure I felt that. You weren't the easiest kid to teach. And I said, yeah, but Mrs. Lervick, you, you, love, you did love me, though. So here you have like this very wise very loving Christian lady, Christian for, for many, many years, her mind, like ours, immediately goes right towards seeing love as this feeling. It's this feeling that we're supposed to feel for others, and it's not. Uh, Mrs. Lovick never felt that feeling for me, but she loved me, she loved me greatly. So this is what John is getting at. In verse 16, he says, I want to talk more about what love means. It's not a feeling. Stop reading love as a feeling. I'm not saying you have to feel this feeling for these people that are, that are hating you. 
Verse 16, he gets more practical. He says, when I say love, if you want to be known as a loving person, it doesn't mean you have to feel this feeling all the time. If you want to have that reputation of being a loving person, here's how you, here's how you get it. Verse 16, he says, by this we know love. Here's how you have that reputation that I have. That he laid down his life for us, meaning Jesus, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He says, by this we know love sacrifice. First point in your notes. How do you love? How do you want to be known for your love? Have, have this reputation that John had? John says, well, you constantly sacrifice. If you want to be known as a loving person, you got to be constantly sacrificing. Uh, we tend to read verse 16, especially this phrase right here, uh, we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. We tend to read this with a very extreme lens. i got to love my siblings in the faith so much that I would die for them. It's like, okay, Rambo, like, chill out. Sure, but you're probably not gonna have to. So why don't we read this with a more realistic lens, the way that it was intended? John isn't talking about death. He's saying you should live your lives for others. You're this living sacrifice. Every morning you wake up and you commit, I'm gonna lay my life down today for those around me. I'm just gonna serve those around me. That's why the point is constant sacrifice. We tend to read that like one sacrifice, I gotta like lay my life down Take a bullet for, for everyone. No, no, no. It's this constant, active lifestyle that you have for everybody around you. Again, some of us think, you know, I would take a bullet for my family. I would, I would take a bullet for those around me. But rarely even give so much as a thought to their needs and what they are. See, sacrificial love requires thought. A thought we don't often think. Some of us brush off, I just, I'm not thoughtful like that. And John would say, you should be. You should be. If we're gonna be known for our love, we gotta be a thoughtful people, looking for needs and filling needs, constantly thinking of others. It's like last weekend, I went to man camp. We had a blast of a time at man camp last weekend. And on, on Saturday, um, on Saturday, a guy asked to borrow my, my truck. He had to go pick something up in the area. And I said, oh, you just take my truck. So he got in my truck, and he saw that it was low on gas, and he, he knew that I had to be up the next morning at 5 a.m. To, to go preach, and so he filled it up. So I, I got into my truck at 5 a.m., you know, ready to go, like, run to the gas station, and I see, and I was like, I text him, like, what'd you do? He's like, oh, I knew you had to be up early, and I just figured I'd save you some time so you can get to church earlier. Like, that was very generous of him, but it's also very thoughtful. A lot of people don't think that way. Just actively looking for a need to fill a need. That is what John is talking about. It's the, uh, it's the Sundays where, where Nicole, my wife, she'll work, and I'll have my three girls, and they're going to have to sit in, you know, in three, different, um, three different bridge kids, and they love bridge kids, but you know, after like, the second one, you're like, okay, I'm kind of done. And Danu will see me walking into church on those mornings, and no one, feeling bad for the girls, he'll like, run and go get them treats so that they can sit in the green room and just kind of eat treats before they got to run to bridge kids. Again, that's just actively looking for a need to fill. That's what John is talking about. It's, uh, it's the Hewer family here at Ranthurst. There's been times where I'll bring my girls in and at 11 o'clock, before the 11 o'clock service, like, hey, we're taking your girls to our house so they can play. They don't have to like sit at church for a whole other service. You know, it's just looking for a need to fill a need. Um, it's my wife who feels bad for our elderly neighbor during, the, during a snowstorm. Like she, uh, she was snowed in. A lady could not get out of her garage. Snow was way too high. And so what did my sweet wife do? She sent me out to go shovel it. It's just thoughtfulness right there. See, John knows what he's, John knows what he's talking about. We, we aren't naturally thoughtful, especially for, for people who aren't in our love category. 
We're, we're thoughtful maybe sometimes with people in our love category, but for those that we're indifferent to or those that we hate, we're not very thoughtful. And John is saying, you have to fix that. You need to remove your lens. You need to stop being selective with who you sacrifice for and who you're thoughtful with, and you need to be thoughtful with every single person around you. He knows what he's talking about. If you look at your Bible, uh, the next bit, John talks about how love is a matter of the heart, and our heart is a big deal. We we talked about that quite a bit um, in our 1 Corinthians series. Uh, Skip over to chapter 4, though. Chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13 just before this, and again, we're, some of what we're skipping over, we're going to come back to. But just before this, John reiterates again. He's very, very repetitive. If you don't love, especially your fellow believers, it's a sign you're not in the family. That should scare church critics. But Because he, he just repeats that over and over and over. Verse 13, though. Verse 13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Notice the pronouns in, in chapter 4, verse 13. We know, plural, we abide, plural, in him, singular, he, singular, in us, plural, given us, plural, his singular spirit. So there's like this bounce between singular, plural, singular, plural, singular, plural. It's like he's saying, when you look at the body of believers, there is this singular to your plural. John is saying, when I say love, if you want to be known for your love, if you want to have this reputation of being a loving person, you unify. So yet you sacrifice for others, but you also unify. Now, I'll just shoot straight with you right now. I don't want to preach this point. Not because I don't like it. It's just I feel like I've been screaming this idea for the last year and a half. We have been as a church screaming unity for the last year and a half. Problem is I have to preach this because Scripture screams it. We live in a world that cares more about opinions than people. And social media has really escalated that truth. But for us, for us in this room, this right here, unity, is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to following Jesus. Some of us fight for unity. And simply put, some of us don't. And here's the question to ask yourself, kind of a little test to see how well you unify. Here's, here's a good question to ask yourself. Do you reject the lines the populace draws? Dude, we live in a world that uh, screams unity as it draws lines. Unity! But vaccinated over here and unvaccinated over here. Unity! But liberal over here and uh, conservative over here. And unity, pro-mask over here and anti-mask over here, BLM over here and racist over here. Just all these, drawing all these lines. One of my favorite uh, houses in my neighborhood has two signs. I always kind of chuckle as I drive by. It's these two signs almost right next to each other. It says, uh, unity over division. And then the next line, it has, you know, in this house we believe in science, BLM, open borders. Okay. Unity if you're within this line, this line, this line, and this line. That's not unity. See, someone who fights for unity often says, I don't care. Oh, I got opinions. I'll have a cordial conversation. But at the end of the day, these lines are ridiculous. I've got friends on both, and people got to calm down. One of the common questions we get as a church is, uh, um, is this church a liberal church or a conservative church? Is this a church, a Democrat church or a Republican church? It's like neither of those should exist. We're at a kingdom church. Is this church a uh, pro-mass church or uh, an anti-mass church? Neither. We don't care. Come in without a mask, come in with a mask. We, we don't care. We're just glad you're here. Now, this doesn't mean we, we forfeit truth. We say we don't care about everything. There will never be unity without truth. We will hold the line on truth. But when it comes to all these lines and debates in our world, unifiers will often go into just saying, it doesn't really matter. Now, over here does... What scripture says matters, gospel matters, 
but I'm not taking that bait to the other stuff. See, John saw Jesus do this a, a lot. How many times did, did, was Jesus baited into some hot debate at the time? Taxes or, or Rome or Sabbath, baited into these, these debates, and Jesus never took the debate. The populace drew a line around uh, Samaria, and Jesus went right in and stayed with them, had Samaritan friends. Jesus had religious leader friends, and he had, uh, and he had friends of, of, of the big government of Rome, and he was friends with insurrectionists. Jesus didn't care about the, the lines that the populace withdrew, the, the popular lines. He cared about what mattered, and that brought unity. I mean, you think about Jesus' own disciples. Jesus had um, anti-government disciples, zealots, and then he had um, government employee disciples, tax collectors. He just didn't care about all these lines that everyone was drawing up. But some of us do. We're not going to be friends if you think that way about masks. We're not going to get along if you vote that way. You think that about the vaccine? Okay, you lost points in my book. You just went somewhere else in my lens. Now, a unifier knocks down walls to bring people to unity in one spirit. That's what's needed. And that's how you're going to be known for your love. You want that reputation like John had of being this loving person? You unify. John's got one more for us, uh, one of my favorite verses, verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Point number three, straight from the text. Number three, cast out fear. Cast out fear. You want to be known for your love. You want to have this reputation of, of being a loving person. You cast out fear. What does that mean? Uh, my wife and my dad get along great. Um, they're good friends. Maybe too good of friends. They, they gang up on me. But she sees him as, as her dad. Uh, but last year when he got his pilot's license, she had told me. Uh, she said, Gina, I, I don't want the girls going up in the plane with, with dad. Which is understandable. My wife isn't one of those crazy helicopter freak-out moms. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have kids with her. That and, uh, no, I won't share that reason. But, but she's saying, I mean, she's saying no to flying. Don't want the girls flying. I, on the other hand, I disagreed with her. I felt like uh, my, my kids would miss out on, on fun memories with, with grandpa and vice versa. That he would miss out on fun memories with his grandkids. And so I felt this responsibility to lead Nicole out of that and press against her. And it was, this, uh, it was a bit of a reoccurring conversation, and I wasn't forcing any, anything. When I say, like, I'm the leader of my home, it's not like I'm going in going, they will ride, I am the man around here. It's like nothing like that. It was just more of like, Nicole, think of the memories the girls will have one day of flying around with, with Grandpa. Think about, think about the memories that he'll have one day. Yeah, I know, Junior, but, but small planes can crash, and I know it's highly unlikely, but, but it's our kids. I remember the day we drove to the airport. Uh, the deal was Nicole and I were just going to go up in the plane with my dad, and as we were getting out of the car at the airport, my, my dad asked me, he said, are the girls coming? I was like, uh, Nicole and I hadn't finished that conversation, but I said, I said, yeah. And uh, I know, right? That's what a true man looks like. No, I'm totally kidding. I, yeah, I took the risk. I said, I said, yeah. And he's loading them up in the plane. And I looked at Nicole and I said, uh, just say the word. I'll just, if you're not ready, just say the word. And she looks at me and she goes, what? And deprive dad and, and the girls of this? I love them too much for that. And, and they went up. Like now, now they fly all the time. My dad has them fly the plane themselves. Like it's this, this amazing memory for the girls. And, and there's no more fear in Nicole because she introduced love to her fear and that gave her the right perspective. Love casts out fear. 
This is why during the, the various plagues in history, um, there, there are epidemics during the early church era, medieval era, during the Black Plague era, and all that. As towns became infected, healthy people would leave. And church people had the reputation for staying in the town and taking care of the sick. Many of those Christians getting sick and dying themselves as a result. You imagine that. People are dropping like flies in town. Healthy people are walking out of the city with fear in their eyes. The Christian families are constantly staying there to give water to the sick, change their bedding, make them food, and risk their lives. The fear of the sickness was driven out by their love for people, their love for others. Christians had this reputation of just being reckless almost. No fear in them because of their love. Rodney Stark, in his book, Rise of Christianity, he makes the case that this is why Christianity exploded during this time. Because as, as cities were, were you know, people were dropping like flies, the Christians would come and take care of the sick. Often, just changing their bed and giving them food and water, that would up their survival rate. So a lot of, a lot of people would live, they would give their lives to Jesus Christ, then families would come back, see their loved one alive. What, you were on your deathbed when we left? And they would be so surprised at what the Christians did. They want to follow Jesus too. This is why Christianity just exploded during this time because Christians had this like almost reckless reputation. We, we don't fear. We just love. So there's a lot of fear today. A lot of fear. And I know much of it is drummed up. I get it. But it's fear. Fear of our current epidemic. Fear of law enforcement. Fear of economy and inflation. Rise in crime. Fear of political climate that our kids will have to navigate. Fear is all around us. And I think the question that Christians should really chew on constantly is, what would it look like in my world to introduce love to the fear in those around me? I think about it this way. You know, I've been pretty open about my own struggle with uh, anxiety, more specifically paranoia. Um, a few years ago, I, I was up at 2.30 in the morning, um, got out of bed, you know, paced the house for a bit, and I just sat on the couch. I was very restless, uh, sitting on the couch, just rubbing the temples of, of my head, trying to calm myself down, when I felt this little hand on my leg. I didn't see her walk in, but, but my middle child, she was five at the time, for whatever reason, she never does this, but she woke up at, at 2.30, never does, and uh, she sat next to me and just put her hand on my leg. And she said, I love you, Daddy. And it was, it was weird. I calmed right down, just kind of like almost like snapped out of it. Now, she didn't know what she did, but she introduced love to fear. She sat right down next to me. Love you, Daddy. That was it. That was all that was needed. It was love that cast out fear. How would this look in your world? Everyone's dividing up, drawing their lines, you know, choosing sides, throwing mud. Fear and loneliness is an epidemic. What would it look like for you to sit with, put your hand on, and love those around you. Christians, we gotta stop getting angry. Gotta stop categorizing. Gotta stop the whole self-preservation. Let's see right now, this dark world that we live in is an opportunity to introduce love to fear. No more lens. Just sacrificial, unifying, fear-defeating love with everyone around us. What would that look like in your world? Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.